Last week when we were together, Pastor Wolf opened up for us Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. And of the matters we considered there, we reflected upon the truth that the Old Testament revelation, well adapted to its time and redemptive history, nonetheless prefigures deeper realities to be revealed in the New Testament. You recall, the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. So writes the author of the book of Hebrews. From this God-appointed method, the church has learned to spiritualize. The practice of spiritualizing is rooted in the fact that God created the world and is revealing himself through his word. And thus, for those who have eyes to see, as Jonathan Edwards put it, the world is full of images and shadows of divine things. The Puritans and their heirs wonderfully employed this technique. Uh, Consider just an instance of it in the work of Henry Scudder in his work from 1627 called The Christian's Daily Walk. He's trying to help us think of orienting our lives each day as we arise in the morning. How you ought to get up thankful to God that he's cared for you through the night. And then he urges meditations for you while you begin to dress. He says in the time between your awakening and rising, it will be useful to you to think on some of these things. I must one day awake from the sleep of sin to righteousness, as well as out of bodily sleep to my labor in calling. The night is far spent, the day at hand, and I must cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. I must walk honestly as in the day. Think also of your awakening out of the sleep of death and out of the grave, even your blessed resurrection unto glory at the last day. Then he continues on. Reflections for while you dress in the morning. I wonder how many of us have had such thoughts. When you arise and dress yourself, it is a fit time to think upon the cause of why you have need for apparel, namely the fall and the sin of your first parents, which is from them derived to you. For before their fall, their nakedness was their comeliness, and seeing it, they were not at all ashamed. It will be likewise good, uh, of good purpose to, for you to consider that in the wise providence of God he has appointed substance for your apparel. The rinds of plants, the skins, the hair or wool of brute beasts, the bowels of the silkworm, the very excretions and superfluous apparel of unreasonable creatures which, as it does magnify the wisdom and power and goodness of God, in choosing and turning such mean and ugly things to such an excellent use, so it should humble and suppress the pride of men. What a lovely way to start the day as you dress. 
For us this morning, mindful of a political season that has lately dominated public and private life, we find Paul in the letter to the Philippians about this same work. He offers us in our text uh, citizenship spiritualized. This exercise holds forth promise for us as in times of political turmoil, what is needed is perspective. Uh, For example, the wise words of the American president, Calvin Coolidge, he said it is to a great advantage to a president and a major source of safety to the country for a president to know that he is not a great man. Well, so we turn to Paul's letter to the believers at Philippi. This is the word of God, chapter 3, beginning at verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, beloved. Let us pray together. Father, we give you thanks for this portion of your word. And we pray that you would help us to attend carefully to its significance and that we would learn the lessons that you have for us here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippi, perhaps you would recall, was a Roman colony of some distinction, a settlement of Italian colonists, some who were veterans of service to the mighty Roman army. This distinction is noted in Acts chapter 16. Philippi, a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. The church was established there on Paul's second missionary journey. This letter was written during Paul's Roman imprisonment. And he writes to Philippi knowing that they are quite mindful that they are a Roman colony. Intensely aware and proud of their Roman privileges. These privileges were manifested in the jus italicum laws that established the legal position of the colonists with respect to ownership, transfer of property, payment of taxes, local administration. All of these were as if, for them, they were on Italian soil. It was as if a little bit of Rome had been dropped down in the midst of Macedonia. Most of these citizens had never been to Rome, but they well understood what that distant city signified for them. 
Now, Paul does not condemn this high sense of civic responsibility and pride. But rather, he uses it to enforce the lessons of their dual allegiance. He urges their place as citizens of Rome as a metaphor for their calling as believers, a metaphor for the Christian life that would have resonated powerfully with their political self-consciousness. Thus, in the opening of the letter, Paul gives the sense that he's trying to convey. He says in chapter 1 at verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Now, our English translation clouds slightly the significance of what Paul is saying. The English manner of life translates a phrase in the Greek that is used for the citizens of a free state. It is literally behave as citizens. The ESV footnote indicates nicely that the Greek can be translated only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. This nicely captures Paul's play on words here. And in chapter 30, uh, 3 at verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. One commentator notes, the exhortation contemplates the Philippians as members of a Christian commonwealth. The figure would be naturally suggested to Paul by his residence in Rome and would appeal to the Philippians as a Roman colony, which was the reproduction of the parent commonwealth on a smaller scale. Thus, Paul writes to them. Now, we notice that in this dramatic conclusion, concluding section of the letter, Paul provides for the believers at Philippi several points. He gives them a solemn warning against a warped self-consciousness, glory and shame, minds set on earthly things. He gives them a statement of the facts, which by way of contrast show the enemies of the cross and grounds their state of mind in a different perspective altogether. Our citizenship is in heaven. This is followed by an expression of hope that we are a people eagerly awaiting from heaven a savior who will transform us. This is followed by a restatement of our calling, an ethical imperative that is to characterize our lives now as a colony of heaven. We are to stand firm in the Lord. Here we see the familiar pattern in Paul of indicative and imperative. Because of who you are, the indicative, here's the way you must be, the imperative. So too we see the pattern of, as it's put, the already and the not yet. This characterizes the Christian life in, the, in this age. Heaven has now broken into the world in this Philippian colony. But there's much, much more to come. And we live now in anticipation what is not yet. All of this is possible 
because heavenly power is now present in this world, a present reality in the circumstances of the Philippians. And so, our doctrine this morning, simply put, the Christian's true citizenship is in heaven, from which he eagerly awaits his Savior, and in which hope he now stands firm. The Christian's true citizenship is in heaven, from which he eagerly awaits his Savior, and in which hope he now stands firm. Now this morning we're going to explore together this proposition, this wonderful truth. There'll be two main divisions to our discussion. First, we'll look at the contrast with this point of view in opposition to setting your mind on earthly things. Then we'll consider together the significance of the idea of being citizens of heaven. How this should resonate in our self-consciousness in everything that we do. And we'll consider that citizenship in five elements. It's grounded in the work of Christ. We'll look at the metaphor of citizenship. The hope that such citizens are to have. The power at work in that hope. And then the application, stand firm in the Lord. So the first of the two main divisions, a contrast. Setting your mind on earthly things. Paul warns them as he describes these miserable circumstances, many of whom I have often told you and will tell you now, even with tears, walk as enemies to the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. See here what Paul is moved to deep sorrow over. Their unbelief and wickedness in this world as enemies of the cross of Christ. Here is one form of self-consciousness. There's no horizon of expectation. There's no hope beyond the satisfaction of bodily appetites in this world. Paul speaks of this as well in uh, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. He reminds the believers in that place, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth, lying to one another, these belong to the old self with its practices. Practices they are to put off. Practices they are to die to. Now such a way of looking at things is particularly a problem for a political season. Because it's often the case that public life in a political season is exactly characterized by such things. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying to one another. And we can be tempted by such things. On your handout this morning, I've provided for you a grim description of this at a different political season over a hundred years ago. 
but perhaps it would sound quite familiar to us. Listen to this description. We are taught, even by experience of customary political party excitement, that a season of political agitation is most unfavorable to spiritual prosperity. Few experienced pastors expect revivals during excited presidential canvases. The mind is absorbed by agitating secular topics. Angry and unchristian emotions are provoked, and the tender dew of heavenly-mindedness is speedily evaporated by the hot and dusty turmoil of the popular meetings and the hustings. Few men who traffic habitually in such scenes exhibit much grace. We suspect that the Christian returning from a day of such excitement is little inclined to the place of secret prayer. When every mind is filled with eager secular concerns, when angry passions rage in every heart, dividing brother against brother in Zion, when unscrupulous haste precipitates multitudes into words and acts of injustice and wrong, agitating and defiling their consciences and provoking the hot tumults of resentment on the other side, what room is there for the quiet and sacred voice of the Holy Spirit? It has been remarked by wise historians that a time of political convulsions is a time of giant growth for all forms of vice And just to that degree, it is a time of barrenness for Christian graces. It's this kind of mindset that's in stark contrast to the heavenly mindset of the Christian citizen. Paul says, you have been raised in Christ. And so seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things of the earth. This is the believer's vantage point for looking at the things of the world. And yet for the heavenly-minded, political sensibilities nonetheless may become powerful metaphors for the Christian life, as we see in Paul's usage in our passage Thus we come to the second division, citizens in heaven. How this fact should resonate in our self-consciousness as citizens in this world, regardless of the circumstances. The first thing we want to notice is this. This citizenship is not our achievement. It is the achievement of our Savior. It's in fact grounded in the work of Christ for us, and the work of Christ in us. In fact, it's important for us to realize that we are naturalized citizens of this colony. We were aliens who were received as citizens by the great largesse of the kingdom of heaven, who came and accomplished for us what we could not accomplish for ourselves. It's grounded in the work of Christ for us, That is our justification. 
So Paul writes to the Philippians in the third chapter, we put no confidence in the flesh. Whatever gain I had, I count but loss for the sake of Christ. I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own which comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's not only the work of Christ for us that establishes this citizenship, but it is the work of Christ in us, sanctification. Now he is here leading us to become more and more fit citizens of this heavenly kingdom. Paul can speak of it again in Philippians 3. He says, and I have not yet attained the fullness of living to Jesus and dying unto sin. I'm not already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ made me his own. Do you see there's the indicative and the imperative? But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. So consider with me then this metaphor. We've seen that this citizenship is not our achievement, and yet it is something we're to be pursuing. We are a colony in hev- of heaven, an image with rich significance. The commentator Gordon Fee put it this way, just as Philippi was a colony of Rome, whose citizens therefore exemplified the life of Rome in the presence of, in the province of Macedonia, so Christians are citizens of a heavenly commonwealth, and they're to function as a colony of heaven in that outpost of Rome. Here, as I said, we have politics spiritualized. We think of what is properly characteristic of this worldly citizens, and then we use that to help us gain some insight into our heavenly citizenship. So think with me, some of the characteristics of citizens. One is they have a sense of place among a people. Uh, For most of us here, we're Americans. And thus we have a sense of place in America. And the associations we have with its history help to define who we are. Well, that's true with citizens of heaven. They have a place in Christ And they have associations with all that Christ has been doing in redemptive history. We've been born again in Christ, John 3.3. And being born again, it is not a temporary life, but it is an imperishable life, according to 1 Peter 1.23. Thus, in another sense, we have a place in this place by birthright. It is a possession. The life of heaven belongs to us in Christ. John 3.36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And so Paul can wonderfully conclude in Ephesians 2.19 You are no longer aliens and strangers 
but you're fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. And that sensibility ought to characterize us in all that we say and all that we do in this world. Second, well, citizens are uh, those who have uh, their name on a register of citizenship. They have a a place on the roll that gives them rights and responsibilities concerning their community. The believer's name is registered on the roll in heaven. And thus, the believer has certain rights and responsibilities. Uh, Think, I'm sure most of you this week went to a polling place. And you walked in uh, and you had to give your name and some identification and someone looked down the roll to see if your name was on that list and if your name was there you were granted the materials necessary to vote to take them to the machine and so on and uh, you know that it's possible that there could be people there to challenge your right think of how embarrassing that would be you give their identification says, oh no, that person's a felon. They had their right to vote taken away. You'd be humiliated before it and so on. But then suppose the mayor of Fairfax City were there and he said, oh no, that fellow has every right and you make sure that he, that's exercised. Well, think of how glorious that would be. Well, we are those whose name is written in the book of life. Philippians 4.3. And We, if we were challenged in heaven by the accuser, have an advocate, Jesus Christ. He says, I will clothe you and I will never blot out your name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Thirdly, citizens properly have a love for their country. They have a sensibility of gratitude for what has been conveyed to them by uh, their experience as citizens of a country. Not too long ago, uh, Jenny went on a trip to Germany. That wasn't unusual, but uh, the timing was a little off. It was uh, within two weeks of 9-11. It was not a particularly happy time to think of traipsing about Europe. Uh, Most of the places they went to, there were people there armed with uh, automatic weapons. And uh, it was a very interesting tour. Uh, And uh, the the amazing thing was it provoked in her this incredible longing to be back in America, uh, more than she had ever known in her life. And when she finally did return, she said she wanted to kiss the ground. Uh, Well, this is the sensibility of God's people now. We are on a pilgrimage through an alien land, one that's not entirely hospitable to us according to the scripture. And we're looking forward to a return to a grand land. This was the case with Abraham according to the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11. He was looking forward to the city that has its foundations and whose designer and builder is God. And notice, God approves of this. God who made this world approves of his people in this world longing 
to leave it and to go to a better place. Hebrews eleven sixteen. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God because he has prepared for them such a city. You see that? Is that not remarkable? Think of the activity of the last election. Those who loved their party and their cause and hoped it would do good for the country. Their willingness to do all that was possible and perhaps things that shouldn't have been possible. But nevertheless, a great zeal for that cause and a longing for its success. Well, all of that's done out of love for their citizenship, if it's done rightly at all. Well, think of then how the believer ought to, out of love for his citizenship, be animated in this world. Again, in your handout, I've given you a, a, a quote from a great old Puritan writer, Thomas Watson. He says this, Love puts a man in the full use of all, his, of all means to enjoy the thing loved. He that loves the world, how active he is in it. Excuse me, how active is he? He will break his peace and sleep for it. He that loves honor, what hazards will he run? He'll swim the throne in, swim to the throne in blood. Love heaven, and you cannot miss it. Love breaks through all opposition. It takes heaven by storm. Well, citizens properly in this world are aware of and act on the basis of the privileges and responsibilities of citizenship. Recall this, in Philippi, Paul strikingly, in Acts chapter 16, he's illegally uh, arrested. Um, they find out that he's a Roman citizen, and they want him to just go quietly away. And he says, absolutely not. Uh, he said, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens. They've thrown us into prison, and they want us now to leave secretly. No, let them come and let them t- take us out themselves. And the police reported this to the magistrate, and they were afraid. The citizen acts on the basis of a citizenship, so too citizens of heaven. They know from the scripture their responsibilities and their privileges, and they act on them and boldly come to the throne of grace. Citizens have a sense of identity with the cause of their country, an allegiance and a loyalty that makes them happy to hear of its well-being and advancement. When I was in France for a while years ago, it was mostly with people uh, who uh, didn't speak English, and uh, I had very little French, and um, there was one thing that was a bright spot each day, the International Herald Tribune, a newspaper uh, that one writer said uh, was a friend to all English-speaking people in the world. Uh, It conveyed a sense of warmth and familiarity that was missing when you were living and working abroad. That's the sensibility that reading the scriptures ought to bring to our uh, hearts and minds, a sense of warmth and familiarity of a place toward which we are seeking as our final home. There's a desire 
for the wholesome institutions of your country and the laws, a willingness to obey. And so, too, this ought to characterize those whose citizenship is in heaven, to love the rule of Christ, the government of his church, the church that he is building, and to see its progress as a sign of hope and encouragement, and thus to support that work as citizens support the work of their country. Enormous energies poured into political campaigns, great sums of money spent. So, too, the citizen of heaven seeks the good of the building of Christ's kingdom on earth and are united with fellow citizens for the common good in building that church. And so the Philippians were to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by their opponents, but having the same mind, the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Let each of you looking only, not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. And in one day, the time of being in a colony will end and will go home to the city of the living God, a glorious hope. The scripture uses all kinds of metaphors for it. Uh, it is our mother, our father, our, the land of our birth, the land of promise, all of the hopes of God's people since the fall and throughout all creation. All are looking to this place. It is the answer to all our yearnings and national inspirations of this city. The reborn are citizens, and all the pilgrims of faith are moving to that place. In the last analysis, this is the city of God, not just of walls, but of men and women made perfect, the city of the living God. This is the hope of believers. From this city shall come a savior, a protector, one who secures our place, promotes our interests, and protects our future. Paul, in our passage, uses a Greek word that's unusual for him. It's translated savior, but it's the only place Paul uses this particular word in his letters outside of the pastoral epistles. And this is almost certainly for the Philippians' sake, since this was a common title for Caesar. It refers to anyone who saves or delivers, gods or significant men. But here in particular, in this context, the Philippians would have known as Caesar as the savior of the world. But on the contrary, Paul wants them to understand that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The Savior is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, whose lordship over every tongue will be confessed at the end of the age. Here is a ground for rejoicing. Here is a ground for standing in the Lord, the Savior, who will deliver us from all evil. The lowly body of our humiliation, all the frustrations and discouragements and humiliations and failures of this life, they are not the last word. 
but rather we shall be like him in his glorious body, transformed, transformed by the power that raised Christ from the dead and by which he reigns over all the world now. The same power governing nations, bringing us to glory. And Paul can say to the Philippians, I'm sure of this, that he who began this good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. The Christian's true citizenship is in heaven, from which he eagerly awaits a Savior, and which, in which hope he now stands firm. Paul's application is simple. He says to them, in light of this, stand firm. What a glorious calling. Stand firm to live with our heart and mind, aspiring daily towards heaven, living in all things as becomes those who look forward to a place to come from which we cannot be dislodged. Hebrews 6.19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, our hope in Christ. In fact, we can properly substitute Jesus' name in our Old Testament lesson this morning in Psalm 42. Jesus is our refuge and strength, very present help in a time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved to the heart of the sea. Nothing can change this. And my friends, note well, Nothing that transpired on Tuesday has changed this, nor could have changed it, this reality. As one thoughtful believer wrote recently, one of the most important roles our, roles our faith plays is to remind us that our greatest hopes and needs for love, connection, meaning, redemption, forgiveness, and purpose cannot be met by politics or political leaders, but only by and through the one whose kingdom is not of this world. And so, beloved, stand firm. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think on these things and your mind will be oriented toward heaven. We are an outpost of heaven a colony from the world to come in northern Virginia. Stand firm. When others are in discouragement and frustration, you have a transcendent source of stability that will glorify your Savior and work for the good of others in this world. Stand firm, blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in a crooked, crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast for the word of life. Let us pray together. What an extraordinary hope we have, O oh, our Savior. We belong to the place where you are and are here only as a colony. The rights and privileges of our heavenly home are now those rights and privileges that ought to animate our lives. Help us as pilgrims to be full of thoughts of our destination 
And let that heavenly-mindedness help us then to be faithful and diligent in all that we are called to do now. We pray this for the glory of our Savior and for our good. Amen.